بسم الله بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا من فضلك علما وتعليما إنك على كل شيء قدير وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله Subhanallah, we have about four or five more sessions before we're done with this long journey. And this is our final module. And when we get to the end of this module, module 11, we'll talk about doing a comprehensive review, uh, an open Q&A session covering the material, as well as how we can prepare for those who want to go to the end and take the actual uh, written and oral test for the certification. Don't worry, it's not going to be five hours long. Uh, we'll talk all about that, inshallah, when we get to the final session uh, within the next four to maybe five weeks. Uh, so last week, I intended to finish the lesson, but I was unable to because we get into tangents. Sometimes we explain things that need explanation, and we don't have enough time, and that's okay. So tonight, we're going to finish up what we covered last week and then go into something slightly different, but also related to what we've been talking about since last week. Now, last week, we began talking about the things that are considered kufriyat, things that uh, beliefs, statements, and actions that would cause a person to leave the deen of Islam, wal-iyadu billah to leave the deen. And these are called kufriyat. Um, there's different words used for them. Yani the books of fiqh talk about the ahkam of ridda, the rulings of apostasy, and they list these things. Why is that relevant for us? Why should we know these details? We don't need to know all of the legal details, but we do need to know what is required for us to secure our own iman. So the things that we should be mindful of lest we believe in them or say them or do them and it causes us to leave the deen of Islam. This is very important. So we need to know those things in a general sense. So that is all being uh, mindful of not falling into kufr. And kufr has been defined in various ways. But for our purposes here, we're saying that kufr is any saying any action or any belief that denies, disrespects, or makes fun of Allah, the prophets, the angels, the Qur'an, the day of judgment, the, anything in the deen of Islam, right? So it encompasses denial. It also encompasses disrespect and denigration, right? So it's a very detailed topic, but we want to look at the things that if someone says them or believes them or does them, they leave Islam. And we covered a lot of that last week. We're not going to repeat all of those details. We just want to pick up where we left off and also address the importance of not taking this knowledge and running with it and applying it to every Tom, Dick, and Harry that we see who may say something that we think is problematic or who may do something that we think is problematic. And we you know, accuse them of falling into kufr. This is a big problem too. So we want to talk about 
some of the rulings that are related to this. So moving along, uh, we talked about the, the aspects of kufr, right, in beliefs about Allah, in beliefs about the prophets, uh, disrespect or disdain, or denial of what is known from the religion by necessity. This last one here is important. Who can give us an example? Denial of something that is known to be from the religion by necessity. Who can give us an example of that? Denying? Or yeah, belief in the Day of Judgment, right? So who can give us an example of a denial of something that would be known from the religion by necessity? Denying angels, Day of Judgment, what else? Salat, zakat. If a person, if a person doesn't pray, does that make them a non-Muslim? Well, you know, there, are, there were some imams who had that view, right? That was a view uh, ascribed to Imam Ahmed, right? That is a view of some of the early Muslims. Uh, it's not the majority view. Uh, but we say that if a person leaves salat out of laziness, right? They, that, does, that itself doesn't take them outside of Islam. They are sinful. They are disobedient to Allah Ta'ala and those prayers have to be made up. By, but by leaving the prayers out of just laziness, they have not left Islam. But if they leave the salat, claiming that it's not obligatory on them, that is a denial of something that is known to be from the religion by necessity. Allah has obligated the five daily prayers. They are fard. Anyone who says they're not fard is denying the words of Allah Ta'ala and denying the words of the Prophet Sallallahu That is takdeeb, belying and denial. That's kufr. That person will be outside of Islam. I'll tell you a story. I was once as a somewhat brand new Muslim, you know, freshly living on my own as a teenager, moved out, and I'm working at a place with some Muslims. And, you know, I'm the new Muslim, the young teenage convert, so I'm super eager to do everything, right? It's time for salah, I tell all the employees, yeah, it's time for salah, let's go, let's go. And one of them was never joining us in salat. And, you know, being the young teenager I was, I decided I was going to ask him about this. What's up with that? Why don't you pray with us? And this man said to me something I will never forget. He said, I have made Hajj 11 times in my life. I don't have to pray anymore. It's no longer an obligation on me. I said, subhanAllah, that statement of yours actually means that you're outside of Islam. You know? And he was related to the boss and I was fired. So. I was 17 years old, so it happens. But the point is that this, these beliefs still exist among people, you know? They just think, oh, it's not obligatory, or I don't have to do it. That would be a denial of something known to be from the religion by necessity, right? Believing that something that is haram, definitively, qata'an, to be halal, 
that, in, that, is, that is denying what Allah Ta'ala has said or what his messenger has said. That is kufr. So if a person denies the prohibition of khamr, of alcohol, if they deny the prohibition of fornication or homosexuality and sodomy and all of these things, and they say, no, they're actually not haram, there's, there's actually nuance. That is kufr. That takes the person outside of the deen. So, and we talked about these last week. So moving along, we want to talk about some miscellaneous issues that relate to these kufriyat and iman and kufr and stuff like that. Uh, we'll just pick back on what we were on last week. Last week we mentioned that among the things that are kufr is to help someone do kufr is kufr. Right? So, so-and-so wants you to help them build an, an idol and you help them. That would be kufr. Right? Uh, to be happy with someone's kufr is kufr. Al-rida bil-kufri kufrun. Being happy or pleased with someone's disbelief is disbelief itself. To say or do something that entails kufr, yastalzim al-kufr, would only be kufr when the person who does it or says it is aqil, when they're sane. This doesn't apply to someone who is majnoon, who's insane, or someone who is yani, sabi, a very young child who doesn't discern what they're saying. Right? So these rulings uh, obviously have application to uh, sane individuals of legal accountability at the age of takrib. It doesn't apply to uh, subyan, young children, toddlers, or people who are lacking in their mental faculty. But this does bring up a question. What about people who purposely diminish their own faculty, their own aql, by drug use, by drunkenness? And in that state of being high or drunk, they say or do things that would be considered kufr. Are they still considered guilty of kufr? Or are they not because they're intellect is clouded due to the drugs and alcohol. This has been debated by scholars very early on in Islamic history. Some of them said that they are not guilty of kufr if they said or did something that is kufr while they were drunk or uh, high. This is according to the Hanafi school, the position of Imam Abu Hanifa and his colleagues because they say that the ruling of kufr only applies to the person who does or says something kufr with belief and qasd, with intention. You know, when they say intention, they don't mean this person is literally saying, I intend to disbelieve. What they mean is qasdul fi'l, and they intend to do that action. They intend to make that statement, meaning it wasn't a slip of the tongue. So they say, but qasd can only happen when the person has the full mental faculty. This was the Hanafi argument. So they say that because of this, we wouldn't make the judgment of kufr. And that is a, that is a sound position. And that's a very uh, good position, especially in areas where there's doubt. Because if you're talking about a Muslim who gets drunk or high and says something or does something really, you know, Islamically it's considered disbelief, you don't want to just throw them outside of Islam. And this, 
you know, using this view, taking this view, uh, is one way to ease them back into the deen and uh, you know, not issue that ruling, which is for scholars anyway. According to the Shafi'is and a position in the Hanbali school, a drunk person can still be guilty of kufr just as they can be guilty of other crimes. Right? If, you're, if a person is drunk and they beat someone up, we don't let them off the hook and say, oh, well, you're drunk, so you're so no problem. You, know, you weren't fully there, so there's no accountability. No. They say just as there is accountability for the crimes they do when drunk, there is accountability for the things they say, even if those things are kufr, even if they're pronouncing talaq and all of these things. So this is just a point to be mindful of uh, when it comes to people in their statements or actions. A uh, couple of other points regarding kufr. Yes. If they intended to say the statement, meaning it wasn't sabukul lisan, you know, the, the tongue got ahead of them and they transposed words. They didn't, they didn't mean for it to come out that way, but it came out that way. That person is ma'adhur, they're excused. But if they're extremely anger, angry, and in that anger, they say something that they intend to say, albeit in extreme anger, that would still be considered kufr, because they still intended the action, right? Um, the only way you would say it's not going to count is if you said that their, their, lack, their mental faculties have left them. And just extreme anger on its own, we couldn't give a blanket ruling and say that would just apply to anybody who's really upset. It would be a case-by-case you know, judgment. If that person was so angry that a judgment could be made that they lost their mental faculties temporarily, maybe. And that's for the qadi to decide, yeah. So, going back to this point of qast or intention, when the scholars say intention, they don't mean the person says, uh, either verbally or in their mind, I intend to disbelieve, to commit kufr. That's not what they mean. What they mean is the person intends to say the, say the statement or do the action that entails kufr. Right? So that's the opposite of doing it by accident or you know, not intending that action, but it came out that way. Right? I'll give you an example. Uh, let's say a person uh, sees a notebook. What, for them, it looks, it looks like a notebook. There's a plain, solid color cover, and they think it's a scrapbook, and they're going through their house cleaning up and decluttering, and they take it thinking it's a scrapbook. And they throw it into the garbage bin, just like this. And then later they realize that was actually a mushaf. Does that person have the same ruling as, a, as the one who sees that it's the mushaf, knows it's the mushaf, and purposely picks it up and throws it in the rubbish bin? They don't have the same ruling. Why? Because one had qast and the other did not have qast, intention. Not the intention to disbelieve, but you know, the intention to do the action knowing exactly what they're doing. So. Another point is that you have to have, there has to be, have to be free choice, right? An act is not considered kufr if it's forced under compulsion. 
they have to intend the action. If they are compelled or forced by threat of uh, death or torture or anything, then that wouldn't count because ikra is a, uh, a preventative, an impediment to that ruling be, being applied. Uh, an, another thing to consider is ignorance. Right? There are people who say and do things and they're so ignorant, they, they're so fundamentally lacking in knowledge of Islam that they may say or do things that would be considered kufr. The question that arises is, is are they excused for their ignorance? And how much is ignorance considered an excuse? Is it always excusable? And this is a very detailed topic among the scholars. The short answer is that there are certain things that are so basic, that are so obvious, that it's not inconceivable that ignorance could be an excuse. Allah is one. Allah has no partners. It's not allowed to worship idols. You know, these things are so basic, there's no excuse for ignorance in these very clear-cut, obvious, definitive issues. Then there are issues that are clear-cut to those who live around Muslims, those who live in areas where there's scholarship and ulama and there's literacy regarding Islam, such as the, the prohibition of alcohol, right? The fact that drinking alcohol is haram. Now, if a person is living, say they're a brand new Muslim, and in the age before internet, before you, know, you could find out things, they don't have connection to any scholars or even any Muslims. They're living by themselves in the middle of the bayou in Louisiana, for instance. And they don't have knowledge. And they believe that drinking alcohol is okay to do. Are they guilty of kufr? No. Because they are living in a place where there's no knowledge of these things, even if they're very basic, even if they're very simple and basic to you know, Muslims who live around other Muslims where knowledge is widespread. So we have to be mindful of some of these details. Um, and if we say that a person has said something that is kufr or did something that is kufr, doesn't mean we're saying they are kafir. There's a big distinction here. And you can say, fulan waqa'a fi kufr. The person fell into an act of disbelief or and he said something that is uh, tantamount to disbelief. That doesn't necessarily mean they're automatically judged as a kafir because there are shurut and mawani'. There's conditions. There are impediments to making that judgment and that judgment is not for any ordinary Muslim to just make on people when they say or do things that are either ambiguous or problematic and potentially kufr. There's a process involved. So there's, there's kind of two benefits to talking about this here as a fardain topic. One, to protect ourselves. Protect ourselves from saying, doing, or believing anything that's kufr. The second benefit for this in a fardain program is to know the danger of speaking loosely about people and their iman. Oh, that person, they're, actually, they're just a kafir. This is what we call takfir. And takfir is a hukum shar'i. It's a legal judgment. It's not a dirty word in Islam. 
it has its place, but it is the role of ulama and qudat to issue that judgment. It's not for just any ordinary person to see something they don't agree with or they don't like because of whatever, and they say, oh yeah, I, that person, they're not really a Muslim. The Prophet ﷺ warned against this when he says that whoever says to his brother, Ya Kafir, then that judgment has fallen on one of the two. And that means that if it's true, then indeed it falls on that person he said is Kafir. If it's not true, then it falls on him. So it's very dangerous. person is saying, Ya Kafir, and they don't realize, like we say as kids growing up, when kids would throw out insults, the kids would reply, I'm rubber and you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off of me and sticks to you. So that's kind of what happens here. The person is giving unjust rulings of takfir. Ah, fulan kafir, fulan mushrik. Uh, and it's not true. There's a very serious danger that those statements are going to fall back on them and they have a bad end at the time of death and they die as a kafir. We don't play with these things. So there's a benefit in knowing some of these conditions and impediments, not because we're going to be qudat, but because there's a process and it's a serious matter. So there are some legal effects here, and I'll talk about those conditions and impediments soon. But there's some legal effects here that we also have to be mindful of. Because, you know, people have, they have associates, sometimes they may even have relatives that they're not really Muslim anymore, are they? Like they say or do things that take them outside of Islam. As sad as it is, this is a reality. So there are legal effects that has on us that we should know about. If a Muslim has done something that is ridda, apostasy, then that means that if they were fasting when they did that, the fast is broken. If they were praying, the prayer is invalid. The meat that they slaughter would be haram to eat. If they were to slaughter an animal after that, it's haram. It's meita. It's carry-on. You can't eat it. Their meat is not halal for us to eat. If that person committed ridda, they are haram for their spouse, husband or wife. Now, it doesn't automatically mean that the marriage is annulled. This fasq isn't automatic. The ulama mentioned that the person who commits the ridda, before the spouses are separated through an annulment, there is a kind of time period where it's haram for them to be together, but the marriage is still intact, and it's, they're given time to make tawbah and to return to Islam. If they don't do it within that time period of usually three months, then it's annulled. But at any rate, they'd have to get married again. Right, so these are rulings that affect uh, people, other people. Uh, none of their acts of worship are valid because all of their ibadat are lacking the most fundamental shart, the most fundamental condition, which is being Muslim. And all of the previous good deeds they did have been lost, even if they return to Islam later. So that hajj they did five years before, it's wiped away. All of the salawat they did, the ajr, gone. All the charity, gone. Everything wiped away. 
Now, when you become a Muslim, when you're not a Muslim, and Allah guides you and you take shahada, the effect of that is that your sins are wiped away. Right? And whatever good you did remains. The reward remains. But here it's the opposite. The bad deeds remain and the good deeds are wiped away. Even if they return to Islam. It's like if they become Muslim again, and we'll talk about how they do that, if they become Muslim again, Alhamdulillah, that's good for them. But it's like they're starting fresh with nothing on their account of good. So that's, that's not a positive thing because I mean, we want to accumulate as much khair as we can in this life. And they've wiped out the account. And that person has to return to Islam immediately. Uh, and there's a whole process in Islamic law if that person is in the Islamic society where the sharia is in effect. There's istitaba and all of that. That's not relevant to us here. But these things are relevant to us because if you have a relative who's left Islam, may Allah protect all of your relatives. I mean, but it's a reality in communities. We have to be honest. If you got that kind of relative, okay, just because they have a Muslim name doesn't mean they're Muslim. If they have literally said and done things that are explicit kufr, or if they have, you know, formally announced, I'm not a Muslim anymore, you can't get married to them, you can't eat their meat. There's no inheritance, right? Either side. So there's very serious consequences in this life and in the next. So having mentioned these legal effects, the question then arises, how does a person like that become Muslim again? If someone did that, they are required immediately to say, I firmly believe that no one and nothing deserves to be worshipped except Allah and Muhammad is his prophet and messenger. At the same shahada over again. Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa ashhadu anna Muhammadan abduhu wa rasuluhu or Rasulullah. And they have to have the intention in their heart that they are becoming a Muslim and leaving behind any of the beliefs, actions or statements they said that took them outside of Islam in the first place. Now they're disavowing those things that took them outside of Islam in the first place. And they have the intention to leave kufr and never go back to it again. And they become a Muslim again, alhamdulillah. And they have to have some remorse and regret over this. I know of some people who have had this experience. I know of a few people. Um, not close friends by any means, but people I've known over the years who've gone through things in life where they they've fell off the path and they left the deen. Knowingly, like they were murtad. And subhanAllah, a dozen years later, they become Muslim again. And they went through a lot. But now, you know, they, they're stronger now. So it, it does happen. And it's important to know these rulings. Uh, now here's, uh, I want to end this with a talk about the conditions and impediments. So we said that the benefit of learning this is twofold to protect ourselves and to know some of the guidelines so we're not reckless with takfir, saying that this one and that one is outside of Islam. For that to be done, first of all, this is not for the layman. It's not for the person who's not trained and qualified. This is ideally for the qadi, the judge to do. Nevertheless, there are shurut and mawani'ah. There are conditions 
and impediments before a person can be declared outside of Islam. So that, that means condition number one, the belief, the statement, or the action of that person has to be considered kufr according to the Qur'an and the Sunnah and ijma' consensus. If there is no evidence showing that it is kufr, uh, then you can't make takfir over that. There's no takfir over matters that are different over. Like we just, I mentioned today after Jumu'ah, this incident that took place in Pakistan. 52 people were murdered by savages. Why were they murdered? Does anyone know? They were outside at a procession. You know, they're commemorating the birth of the Prophet Regardless of anyone's position on that issue, whether they do it or don't do it, regardless, it doesn't matter. The person who perpetrated that against these people believe that that makes them kafir. So imagine, subhanAllah, on the Day of Judgment, the person who did that is resurrected. Allah makes them stand and asks them why they murdered 52 people and their answer is, I, I, I thought they were disbelievers in you because they were commemorating the birth of your prophet. What kufr did they do? A'udhu billah. So you, you see why this is important because people who have that mindset, they're very loose with takfir. It's unjust takfir. So the thing that, that is, it has to be kufr according to ijma'ah. It can't be some thing that that person disagrees with or this wacko says it's kufr and it's not when the majority of the ulama say no, it's not. Right? It has to be very clear cut. Number two, there has to be certainty that the person actually fell into it. Like you can, it is, this cannot be based on guesswork. Because there's the statement that the ulama have said throughout the centuries, مَنْ دَخَلَ فِي الْإِسْلَامِ بِيَقِينَ لَا يُخْرَجْ مِنْهُ إِلَّا بِيَقِينَ The person who enters into Islam with certainty is not removed from Islam except with certainty. So the thing that would make them leave Islam, it has to be something that you know for certainty they believed, said and did, knowing it is uh, something this uh, drastic, this uh, horrible, and they intended to say that thing or do that thing. There has to be yaqeen. And this means that the third condition is you have to establish the proof on them, right? Maybe they're ignorant. And maybe that ignorance is not really an excuse, but you still establish the hujjah, you still establish the proof, because Allah Ta'ala says in the Qur'an, وَمَا كُنَّ مُعَذِّبِينَ حَتَّى نَبَعَثَ رَسُولًا We do not punish a people until we have sent a messenger. So if a person like that was to be put in front of the judge for saying or doing something that is kufr, the, the qadi will establish the hujjah and say, listen, what you said is disbelief and this is why you should take that back and make tawbah. Just give them the chance. Establish the hujjah. Maybe they misunderstood something, so he explains it. You know, that process has to be engaged in uh, before that judgment could be made. Yes? 
Saying that someone is a mushrik is no different from saying they are a kafir. Yeah. yeah. People throw these words around. It's the same thing. Because what is a mushrik? This is the opposite of a muwahid. The opposite of a mu'min. So it's the same thing. And they can't argue that, oh, who a mushrik? Shirk al Khafi or Shirk al Asghar. They're playing word games because you could also say the same thing for kafir. Because kafir can mean someone who denies a blessing, not an actual rejecter, right? So these are the main conditions. Uh, and then there are some impediments, things that if they are in place, the ruling of kufr can't be given. So one of them is ikrah, compulsion. If a person is forced to say something that is kufr, or do something that is kufr, like prostrate to an idol at gunpoint, if someone's threatening to kill them or torture them, they are excused in doing that as long as their hearts are content with iman. And this is mentioned in the Qur'an, and it's in connection with the story of the family of Yasir, radiallahu anhu, and Sumayya, and Ammar, this uh, ayah was revealed when Quraysh were forcing them to say and do things under the threat of torture. And they uh, mentioned this to the Prophet ﷺ, and the verse was revealed. Whoever disbelieves in Allah after his belief, except him who is forced. Right? Ukriha. And that person's heart is at rest with iman. Mutma'in. They are content with iman. As for the one who opens their breast to kufr, then upon them is the wrath of Allah, meaning they willingly embrace it. So ikra is an impediment. Another impediment would be a lack of intention. And we mentioned that earlier. The, by intention, this doesn't mean they say, uh, I intend to disbelieve. Rather, it means that they said or did something that is kufr, and they intended the action. يعني قصد الفعل أو القول. This excludes what person? The person who did something that is kufr without intending the action, or who said something that is kufr by a slip of the tongue. So I gave you the example of the mushaf. They thought it was a notebook and they threw it into the trash, and only later they realized it's actually a mushaf. They didn't intend to throw a mushaf into the trash. That person has no cost, no intention to do the act which is kufr. What about? If they are uttering the kufr or doing the actions of kufr, then according to Imam Ibn Hajar al-Haytami and al-I'lam bi al-Islam, it's kufr. To pretend and mimic the actions uh, of, of idol worship and things like that. Yeah, so here is where it gets a little more murky because they still intended to perform, put on a performance. So that's where the intention comes. Right, they didn't accidentally pretend. They, you know, they purposely pretended. So the pretending is a, still a purposeful act. And 
it's a belittlement of the prohibition of idol worship and it is saying words of kufr with the intention of pretending or mocking or joking and these things. It's a very dangerous territory. So, you know, maybe that person, we're going to be careful here and say we need to explain to the person what they're doing and they should avoid this. But it would still be considered kufr for a person to uh, mimic those actions. And we still say they intend it. Not that they intend kufr themselves, but they intend to mimic, they intend to imitate. So their acting is not done as an accident. The acting is done on purpose. Does that make sense? So, I mean, the actual ruling, we definitely would have to sit the person down, ideally the qadi, and explain, give them the chance to repent, right? But it's something that no one should uh, jump into. If you're offered a movie role to play Abu Lahab, don't take that role. Seriously. Don't play Fir'aun. Right? Don't play the others either as far as I'm concerned. So the, the, the slipping of the tongue is, a, is an important one. And there's a really beautiful hadith which illustrates this. We have a hadith from the Prophet ﷺ where he says that Allah is more pleased with the tawbah of his servant than a person who has his camel in a waterless desert carrying his provision of food and drink and it is lost. He, having lost all hopes to get that back, lies down in shade and is disappointed about his camel. When all of a sudden he finds the camel standing before him, he takes hold of its reins and then out of boundless joy he blurts out, Allahumma anta abdi wa ana rabbuk. That's the wording in Arabic. Out of joy the person says, Oh Allah, you are my servant and I am your Rabb, your, your Lord. And the Prophet ﷺ says, he commits this mistake out of extreme joy. So this is called transposing. He's transposed one word in place of another. He meant to say, Allahumma anta rabbi wa ana abduk. You are my Lord and I am your servant. But he was so joyful that he mixed the two words up and placed one before the other saying, O oh Allah, you are my servant and I am your Lord. Did he intend to say that? No. Right? So, and if someone was to hear him and say, I think you, you mixed the words up there, you should. This is what you said. That person would immediately say, Astaghfirullah, and then say, No, no, obviously I meant this. Why can't we say that person is guilty of kufr? Is the statement itself. Kufr. By itself, the statement is kufr. But you can't give the judgment of kufr to that person because they, they had a slip of the tongue. They didn't intend to say that statement. So this is important. And lastly, because we're running out of time, uh, of the mawani' the impediments, is faulty interpretation that negates Intent. So this is any ta'wil, ta'wil here, ta'wil qareeb, not a far-fetched interpretation, but you know, a reasonable, faulty interpretation. So this is not going to apply to worshipping idols. This is not going to apply to insulting the divine or the prophets or anything that's very clear-cut. 
it's going to apply to things that there's a possibility of the person misunderstanding. And we have a really good example for this too in the uh, narration regarding the Sahabi Uthman ibn Madhun radiallahu anhu. Now Uthman ibn Madhun radiallahu anhu, he had a faulty interpretation of a verse of Qur'an. Uh, when the Qur'an finally revealed the verses declaring alcohol haram, there's a particular verse that he misunderstood. The verse is talking about people who had a history of drinking before the prohibition, before it was haram, telling them that those who drank and then exercised taqwa and belief, then they're fine. This is not going to harm them. You know, their drinking won't harm them as long as they exercise taqwa. The verse is talking about past drinking. As long as you exercise taqwa, your drinking in the past is pardoned. It's not a sin on your account. He misunderstood the verse and thought it meant as long as you exercise taqwa, it's okay to drink. So he thought, oh, I can, I can drink as long as I have taqwa in my dealings. And he faced a consequence for this, but he was excused because he's not denying the prohibition of alcohol at all. It's just he has a faulty interpretation for thinking that it could be allowed if a person exercises taqwa. He misunderstood the verse. Once the verse was explained to him, he doesn't hold the belief that, oh, some people can drink, but not everyone can drink. So faulty interpretation can also be an impediment. So these are the, the arch rules. You, it, to apply these to every individual situation, that's the role of the ulama. That is the role of qualified scholars, people who have an understanding of language, they have the ability to uh, penetrate to the depths of what's going on and understand what is mu'tabar, what is considered, what is not considered. For people, ordinary people, to learn a few lists of what is kufr and then start throwing out rulings left and right on people is very, very dangerous to their iman because they end up becoming a khariji, essentially. They become like the khawarij of old. Right? Because they go beyond things that are clear-cut kufr to things that aren't even kufr at all. And they start throwing everybody out of Islam except for them and their little group. Until their group divides and then they're split into two, each of them accusing the other. It's a, it's a gateway to sectarianism. It's a gateway to deviation. So the best thing is to avoid all of that. You know, if someone comes and says, you know, Something like idol worship is praiseworthy. That's, there's no question about that. There's no question about that. If they say it's actually something Allah loves and is pleased with and it's good and people should do it. And they, if they still say they're Muslim, I don't think anyone's going to hesitate in saying that you can't be Muslim and hold this belief. Right? There's some cases that are super clear cut. But there's cases where it's not so clear-cut. You know, a person says, you know, I think this is halal. Uh, and they just have a faulty interpretation. They're not denying a text of the Qur'an or the Sunnah. 
They're not denying something mutawatir or something qat'i, clear-cut. They just have a, a bad ta'wil, a bad interpretation. So you have to be careful there. Um, I intended to go through something else here. That's why I changed the color of the slides. But we don't have time. Uh, we'll just open the floor for any questions or any follow-ups to these issues. And we'll pick up next week with the topic of ibadah. مَنْ لَمْ يُكَفِّرِ الْكَافِرِ فَهُوَ كَافِرِ Yeah. This is another issue because we talked about in the very first session the whole class was about salvific exclusivity. The fact that Islam is the only valid religion in the sight of Allah. This means that we believe that anyone who doesn't embrace Islam and they die in that state then they're dying as a kafir, right? So one cannot hold that others uh, are open to salvation outside of the deen of Islam. So from that we have a principle. Like Allah Ta'ala has said explicitly that those who believe in the Trinity have disbelief. Kafar, right? So if a person says, no, lam yakfuru, they haven't disbelieved. What's happening here? They're denying the Qur'an. That's takdeeb. Right? Takdeeb al-Qur'an. Takdeeb is the strongest, most obvious form of kufr. To say that what Allah says is not true. This means that there's a principle from this. مَنْ لَمْ يُكَفِّرِ الْكَافِرِ فَهُوَ كَافِرِ Whoever doesn't say that the disbeliever is a disbeliever, is a disbeliever himself. That principle is true when we're talking about someone who is uh, clear-cut outside of the deen of Islam in a way in which there is no ambiguity at all. Like a Hindu, okay, that's the, the easiest example. We'll say a Hindu. The person says, no, Hindus are Muslims too. They're saying the idol worship is equal to Tawheed. All right, so this is takdeeb, this is denial. So... That person, of course, if they intentionally embrace that belief that Hindus are Muslims, or you know, idol worship is okay, and they're not actually idol worshippers or disbelievers, that would take them outside of Islam. So the Hindus would be outside of Islam, obviously, but this person would be too. But what about his relatives? You know, his, this person who said that, we could say he's outside of Islam. But what about his relatives if they're not sure about him? Like that relative may say, okay, did he say that really? What does he mean by that? Is he, he's, he's a Muslim, isn't he? And someone says, no, he, he left Islam. You know, if they're wishy-washy about whether he's left Islam, you don't get to say, oh, well, your cousin's kafir. And because you're not saying he's kafir, that means you're kafir too. Because then that means that's level three. So you have level one is the Hindus. Level two is the person who said that they're actually on Tawheed. Level three would be their family who doesn't say he's kafir. Level four would be the neighbors who don't say that they're kafir. You don't, we don't do this. This pyramid takfir where you know, this, is, this is absolute garbage. Because, and you know, some, there's some groups who have that belief, believe it or not, 
They believe that Muslim societies were in jahiliyyah for a variety of reasons. And therefore, they said, you know, all the rulers are, you know, they're all kuffar, mushrikun. And therefore, all of the police are all kuffar, murtadun, as well as the soldiers. And oh, actually, you know, even the people who work in the government, all of the wuzara, all of the, even the street cleaners, you know, because they work for the taghut, so they're also kuffar. And their families are kuffar too because مَنْ لَمْ يُكَفِرُ الْكَافِرُ فَهُوَ كَافِرُ They didn't make takfir of them, so they're kafir too. And, you know, so that guy's wife, he cleans the streets. He's a government employee. He works for the taghut government, therefore he's kafir. His wife has to make takfir, but she didn't, so she's now a kafir. Her cousin in the village doesn't make takfir of her, so the cousin in the village is kafira. And then her village becomes kafir because they don't make takfir of her. There's actually groups that believe that. And alhamdulillah, they're a small minority. But it, it, this is what happens when you are disconnected from ilm. And you allow hawa and inharaf deviations to arise. And we see the ugly face of this in the things that are happening, like what happened in Pakistan today. That what, what happened in different parts of the Muslim world. You know, cr- literally crazy people. And I don't, I don't mean legally crazy, as in majnoon. They're, they're crazy in the conventional sense, but they're still accountable for this. So now I've entered into ranting territory, so I'll stop. But yeah, that principle is true in, in a very limited way. But it can't be used to just make this pyramid kind of takfir that these crazy people do. Right. That's, that's a good question. Um, so we, there's a general principle that al-Muslim la yarithu al-kafir. And this is based on a hadith. The, the, the Muslim doesn't inherit, inherit from the disbeliever uh, and vice versa. Now, some of the fuqaha have made a distinction between the wasiyah, which is the bequest, and the uh, mirath, which is the estate division that occurs outside of that, that amount of money, up to one-third. Um, but in this scenario, if a person has a, a relative who is a murtad, and that person dies and leaves behind money, the question here is a little more complicated because then it becomes, where does it go? Should they not just take it and benefit from it? Or should it be given to something else? That's a question I don't have really the answer for, although I'm aware of scholars talking about it. But in the case where that person's a relative, they're a murtad, and their Muslim relative dies, leaving behind money, the murtad doesn't get anything. They don't get anything. Because the condition for receiving something of the wirat, the, the, the mirath, is Iman. So in the books of Fiqh, when they talk about Mirath, inheritance, estate division, there are certain mawani'r, there are certain impediments to receiving it. Number one on the top of the list is Kufr. If one of the relatives in the, the surviving heirs left Islam, then their share is not received and it gets redivided among the survivors who are Muslim. So that's the number one impediment to receiving it. Yeah.
I mean, conceivably you could, but they're not receiving any ajr because the, the receiving the ajr, you know, there needs to be iman. It won't benefit them until they have iman. So, you know, people can do good things and they, and they get benefits from those good things. But the acceptance of those good things in the hereafter is conditional on iman, right? They can benefit in this life, right? It can, it can benefit them. But it won't be of an afterworldly benefit unless they have iman. Yeah, Allah. Take this. Yeah. Well, we, we talked about this, uh, it could be an ex, but not the person is properly Yeah, it's the general principle. And when we say general principle, we note that there are some exceptions. You know, if a person, if a person takes. Say there's a mushaf on the table and someone stands up and takes it and throws it, billah, they throw it into Najasa. It's a very clear act. From our perspective, this person knows exactly what they're doing. And it's disrespect and it's kufr. But to arrive at the judgment that they are kafir involves a process. And that process ideally would be to take that person before the Qadi uh, and figure out what's going on. Maybe that person's illiterate and didn't realize it was the Mus'haf, you know, or maybe they thought it was some other book. You know, maybe, you know, there's all sorts of possibilities for why they, they did that, which would take it outside of being kufr, some kind of excuse. It's for the Qadi, the scholar, to explore what those might be to prevent the ruling of kufr being applied to him. Because it's better to leave a person as a Muslim based on you know, these kinds of excuses than it's better to leave a thousand people like that than to unjustly cast someone outside of, one person outside of the deen. Better to be a thousand people like that where yeah, I mean, it's unclear you find some reasonable argument to keep them in Islam than to throw one person out unjustly. So, all the rulings of inheritance and like the all the religions of not being valid, those are for a person like for the Hukum Shari If they have the Hukum Shari of being uh, considered a Murtad. Now, if they clearly say it, then you take them for their word where it would require some investigation in a process involving ulama to do a kind of tahqiq as if there's ambiguity where they're still maybe they're still saying they're muslim right but they did this or they said that or, or they continue to do this and say that and it's considered a kufr that would involve a kind of tahqiq to verify what's going on before you can give a final determination right we wouldn't want to just rush to hasty takfir in those situations. Yeah. Three questions. What time is uh three forty? Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. One should definitely avoid saying that. And whether or not a person saying that has committed kufr, uh, it would require some investigation. Because on the surface we could say that, but there's likely impediments. There's likely faulty interpretations or the excuse of ignorance, right? It's not so unambiguous that you could just say clearly and readily that yes, this person will be outside of Islam. Um, but that's regarding the, the last two. The first one you said was? Responsibilities of the community. Yeah, it's tough because we don't live in a society where you know, the laws of Islam are enforced. We don't have qudat. So this, it's not like we can drag that person in front of the qadi and you know, do istitaba, get them to repent. You, know, you, you can't threaten them. You can't do anything. That would jeopardize your own situation. And you can't act extrajudiciously and take the law into your own hands because that's not your role. So I think the best way to deal with it is, I mean, depending on the severity of the case, try to just continue making da'wah to that person while making other people aware that this is what they're going through. Uh, Not so that they can chastise them and uh, curse them, but they can give them da'wah. And after a period of time, if they insist on that, then they essentially should be shunned in that, okay, we don't want to have association with you because we don't want to associate with murtads. While at the same time leaving the door open for them to become Muslim again, should they desire to become Muslim again. Uh, And I think for these things, it's always a case-by-case basis. I don't think there's a single answer that would apply to every single situation. That would be a general answer, I think. Allah A'lam. Yeah, same thing like the, the Mecca one, right? Because the word, the word Ali and Ilah or Aliha, you know, the question here is they're, they're using it figuratively or literally, and, you know, are they affirming multiple gods or not? And so there's these questions of the figurative use of language and the limits of that. So there's a lot of considerations. And when you explore some of these questions, you realize how, how, how serious this is. It's not always open-shut cases like a person making sajda to an idol knowing what they're doing. Sometimes there's layers of ambiguity that only the scholar would even think of. You know, a lay person may say, oh, look what they said. Oh, khalas, out. They're kafir. When there's more to consider. Yeah. Wallahu a'lam. Wa sallallahu wa sallam ala Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sallam.